winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 27th episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gometra. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk with Anna Mockford from near Contra in the Ross of Mull. That's my dog. Sit. Nice square. Anna is a professional photographer and was born in the southeast of England. She grew up in the 70s and 80s before going off travelling with her partner Nick, who's also a photographer. I've been keen to talk to Anna since I started working on what we do in the winter, as she's one of those people whose work tends to take them away from the island and all over the world. But it's having a home base here on Mull that matters most. A place to raise a family and to be at home. We recorded the episode at Anna and Nick's home near Contra. You'll hear the birds singing loudly in the background throughout. I'm a bit low in the mix of this episode, which is probably quite a good thing. The whole What We Do in the Winter project has been sponsored in kind by the Island Bakery. Not everyone who takes part in it gets a complimentary packet of lemon melts, which are always gratefully received. The website, whatwedointhewinter.com, has links to the topics covered in our chat. I'll be back at the end of the podcast with some more information. And now, over to Anna. My name is Anna Mockford. I'm reaching a milestone of an age this year. I'm a mum mm-hmm. of two children, mm-hmm. long-term partner to Nick, and a bit of a creative, and um, generally do lots of bits and pieces, really. Yeah, nothing very definite about me. And where do you live on Mull? Um, live on the Ross of Mull. Have you always lived, uh, in your history on Mull, have you always lived in the Ross of Mull? I have. And in fact, thinking about it, I was thinking about this a few months ago when somebody said to me, oh, you've moved a few times. And I said, yes, but only within like a square mile, <laughs> including going across to Iona for a year. So where did your life start? Where did you, where did you come so, from? So originally from a village outside of Brighton, about 20 minutes outside of Brighton to the north of Brighton. Fairly rural, what I thought was fairly rural existence <laughs> until... <laughs> Pretty bog standard South East England life. What did your folks do? My father was a police officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mum ran a nursery school and then latterly got involved in uh, doctor surgery and pharmacies and things like that. So she still works. My dad died about 10 years ago. And um, yeah, I have a brother. Mm-hmm. So kind of just under 2.2 children, family. <laughs> So my surname, Mockford, is very Sussex, which is where I'm from. But my dad was born in Berkshire because of the war. They were evacuated. Um, He was born in Berkshire and then, but originally from Kent, went back to Kent after the war and lived most of his childhood and teenage years in Kent. Met up with my mum and decided by getting hitched that he ought to get a sensible job and applied for the police force. (laughs) On nine pounds a week. Oof. That was the salary in the, those days. Because he wore glasses, Kent Police declined him. Oh no. So <laughs> So he decided to apply to Sussex who were less fussy. Yeah, yeah. And so they moved to they moved to um Sussex and then um I don't know, something like twenty years later, 
his father, my grandfather, sort of says, oh, you know that your grandfather was from Sussex, from Brighton. And so my dad started doing genealogy thing and uh. found a churchyard in a place called Rottingdean. Yes. The foot of the Downs. And pretty much every other graveyard is a Mockford. Mockford. Yeah. My goodness. So it's very, yeah, it's quite, yeah. What did you do for fun when you were growing up in, in, in rural Sussex? Hmm. A lot of hanging out with friends because mm-hmm. people lived, you know, we, I lived, although I lived in a village, it was a village of 20,000 people. <laughs> That's twice the size of the so, new. <laughs> That's not a village. So it's like a... It's, yeah, that just goes to show you how densely populated Southeast is. So I had really good friends, girlfriends. Yeah. Um, what, did you, what did you do? Did you kind of go scrumping, stealing fruit, or what, did you, what were the things you'd do? I don't know, what did I used to do? I mean, I, I guess, you know, as I was, I always, I always had a job. So as soon as I could legally work, so at 12 or whatever, when you could, in those days, when you yeah. could... Um, get on a bike and deliver newspapers. So I used to do that in the afternoon. I was £1.90 a week. That's, that's pretty <laughs> 60p good. 60p for a bonus on Saturday. That's time and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it did go up a little bit. Although we were, we lived about an hour, an hour and a half from my grandparents. My dad's shift work had quite an influence on how we spent our free time. So if he was... Night shift, of course, hanging around the house wasn't great. No. And we'd often go up and see my grandparents at the weekend and things. And what impact did having a dad in the police force have on, on your lifestyle as a family? Oh, it's quite interesting. It had no effect on me mm-hmm. at all. I don't ever remember it being an issue. And I guess my dad always made sure he wasn't... Well, I mean, I didn't hang out with the local villains either, but... Um, I guess my dad's posi- where he was positioned within, you know, where his um, where his beat was, and, or was never kind of locally because you wouldn't tactically do that. No, choose to do that. But yeah, I mean, there's lots of things happened, and you look back and reflect. You know, my dad had to go to the minor strike. Really, had about four bouts of going doing that. Oh God, four or five, and um, he wasn't part of the SPG, was he? I mean, he never talked about it actually, yeah. but he really it was quite an interesting experience in how he actually loathed being in this kind of male orientated system yeah. and network. So I guess off the back of that experience and doing that he well he politically he was very aware of what was going on and he knew that as a police for as police officers there were pawns in this whole political charade going on so um he used to just tell us that he was pushing the tea trolley and send a postcard he loved going he the one experience that he really quite Enjoyed for enjoy was it with was the term was going to Durham, mm. um, because he said it was actually a genial experience, whereas everywhere else he'd been to Nottingham, Kent, other um, you know Yorkshire pits as well, and it was very intense. But Durham was not only a beautiful city, but also it was actually less intense. But yeah, so he 
was a Maggie boot boy, which he was not really proud of at all. But there you go. So I guess a big impact. My dad's job was that kind of thing, really. Mm. Training for riots. Gosh. You know, riot training. Broke his finger because he was training for riots. <laughs> but, you know, you realise that actually in the 80s, there was an awful lot of unrest. Yes. Yes. And a lot of unsettled feeling. And that was just part of your life. And you felt that. And, you know, there's this nostalgia. I, you know, when I see people get nostalgic about the 80s, I just think it was an absolute... I hated it. I hated that. Being young in the 80s and feeling that kind of insecurity. And um, you never knew, you know, there was the bomb issue, the Cold War the unrest on the streets, the division that Margaret Thatcher was and the Tory party were, you know, dividing the country. And um, the weird thing, of course, is that being in the wealthy pocket of the Southeast, yes. which I grew up, yeah. you know, of course, uh, you know, her policies were having huge positive effects on people down there. But I was quite aware of the injustice of that yeah. as well. You know, I would always argue against what a great decade that was. Although the music was pretty damn good. Mm, debatable. Oh. <laughs> debatable. Talk, 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 talk are one of the greatest bands. Oh, there's, yeah, I guess there are. I mean, New Order. Yeah. I was a huge police fan, funnily enough. Do-do-do-do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, Sting and police fan. And then... Um, yeah, New Order, and so there were gems. Yeah, so but were, there was an awful lot of what were, what were the things? Uh, yeah, the um, what, yeah. <laughs> what would you say were the things that brought hope and kind of relief into that view of the eighties? Was there anything? Oh gosh, it's quite interesting, isn't it? How how you felt? I think the closer you got to the end of the decade, <laughs> the better it felt. It was really <laughs> funny, and I guess it was timed because. Um, that would have been at the end of my schooling. Yeah. So O levels and A levels finished, and I by the time I did A levels, I just wanted out. I yeah. didn't want to be in Haywards Heath any longer. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> and I'd met Nick at that point as well, really? and he was a year older than at school. He was a year above me, so he um he had you know he had vision of yeah just doing other stuff than hanging out in Hayward's Heath, which I was kind of, yeah, great. Yeah. So Nick and you have been together for 25? 30. Oh, are we? Something is. Oh 32 my. years. And here's you ribbing me for being married for two years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's us. 32 oh. years. Oh, my goodness. 32 years, years unmarried. That's good on you. <laughs> good on you. That's brilliant. Oh, dear. Gosh, 32 years ago, I was eight. <laughs> 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 Just rubbing it in a bit, but uh, oh my goodness! I know it's quite scary, isn't it? Really? That's brilliant. So what? How did Gosh. you meet? How did you meet Nick? Was he at the same school? Was he at a different school? No, he's at a different school. My mom and her family were Catholics, and so we were very. We, my brother and I were brought up at Catholic schools yeah. and um, local primary schools and local um, comprehensives, and then so we were quite involved in our little church at the end of the road, yeah. and. Um, when Nick's family moved into the area, they were also Catholic families, so they came and um and I met Nick through church. Um we had a priest at the time who used to take a whole group of us off to Lourdes, which really? is in South of France, 
to help with disabled, uh, well, lifting wheelchairs and people in wheelchairs, plus also those huge stretches, yeah. massive heavy stretches up the Stations of the Cross in oh Lourdes. Goodness. So fit. So um, yeah, I mean, it's a different world. It's incredible, really. So in the west of Scotland, being a Catholic is a very strong identity, and being Protestant uh, is a, a very strong identity issues. Were you aware of such issues in the south of England as well? No, not at all. So it was quite alien when I came up yeah. to Mull and sort of thought that you were kind of defined by the football team you supported. <laughs> Which colour do you like? I don't yeah. know. I'm it's kind of strange. I guess the thing is down... I guess, you know, it on, I guess on a loose... The thing is, I went to a Catholic school and predominantly maybe 50% of the people there or the kids there would have come from Irish families. Oh, right, OK, yeah. And the at the time for, you know, the Irish were always lambasted. So that was... Indeed. You know, that that was just how life was, if you're Irish. But then I was in school with these kids who are probably second or third generation. Yeah. So there wasn't any kind of prejudice at all when I was growing up in my school and in my group of friends. So I never really was aware of that. So we mentioned Nick, Nick as he just goes past the window there. <laughs> <laughs> so what, um, how did you first meet him then? What, how, did you, how did you meet a boy from a, another school? <laughs> well, I did the kind of I quite I kind of quite like the look of him. <laughs> and then thought, and I thought I'll get to know his sister. Ah. <laughs> that old adage. Yeah. Anyway, we kind of um, I used and I I kind of used to organise events in the church with youth events. Yeah. Um, you know, getting the old folks in and doing a slap up meal and we were all waiters at the meal and all that kind of thing. Nice. Um, and so he used to involve Nick and his sisters. <laughs> but yeah, and then, because actually he lived not that far from me, about a mile and a half away out in the sticks. And so quite often he would, you know, I would see him catching bass or, you know, and, and we just, yeah, got to know each other. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah. 32 years later. I know. <laughs> I know, amazing. Gosh. So um, what did uh, Nick tell you of, of Mull? Because he'd been living on Mull for yeah, a while. Yeah, but... he'd been living on Mull for about five years. Mm-hmm. And then his parents left Mull and he moved back down. So he'd come from London up to Mull. So he had about a year of having to adjust at primary school. Yeah. And uh, get his ear into a very a strong speaking, accent, yeah. and um, and he would have been about the same age as Oscar is now. Oh, right, okay. So quite, quite interesting, mm. yeah. Quite formative, formulative years. So it left a big impression on him, and um, needless to say, he wanted to come back up to Mull. What do you think it was that? I mean, hopefully, talk to Nick at some point in the future himself. But what do you think it was about Mull that 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 got him. I mean, Achaban, the house they were in, is absolutely lovely as well. It's lovely, um, but I think actually probably the landscape, the attachment, the closeness to nature, the environment, uh, you know, a real interest in the world around, you know, directly outside your house and having... <laughs> That's uh, protest vote by Nick <laughs> about that. 
And I think that's probably, um, you know, that, that had a really big lasting effect on him. Obviously, yeah. yeah, yeah here yeah. we are, yeah. Yeah. You finished school, you started with Nick. What did you do after school? Um, went off travelling. Oh, fantastic. So got an interrail ticket. This is 91? This is 1988. Worked the summer and then brought an interrail ticket and interrailed for... Um, six weeks, something like that. Where did you go? Flew to Spain, started the interrail, the rail ticket in Spain. We didn't want to waste. So we decided to fly directly to Spain and start it there. And then um, we went to southern Spain, across to Portugal, across to Morocco. Can you use the Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. I know they say it's now it's not a patch on what you could use so it. What was Mor- now, Morocco and Marrakesh? These are kind of the places of, of dreams, and you know, in the seventies and into the eighties. What what was it like? It was great. I mean, I love I loved it because it, it was very intoxicating and yeah. in its kind of exoticness. Yeah. My memories of it. I mean, I've got photographs, mm. but my memories of it is that people wouldn't stop touching your bum. Oh, no. So there was even Nick as well. Oh. So they just wanted to touch you. And it's not... Con- <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then it was like whispering, chocolate, chocolate, which was a byword for some cannabis, I guess. Right. You want chocolate? Yeah. Put us in the streets of London. Skunk! Skunk! <laughs> crack, crack. Yeah. You want chocolate? And and kind of feeling that kind of edginess and not knowing whether oh you're going to be robbed or yeah. <laughs> are you? <laughs> um, but kind of enjoying that otherness. Yeah, being young and not really being completely aware of all the consequences to everything <laughs> that you're doing, which as you get older, Brilliant. you yeah. yes. So we slept. We used to sleep. You know, on a beach. Yeah. Overnight. Yeah. Hugging your passport, kind of thinking, don't open you nick my passport. <laughs> your passport down your arse cracks. You know what goes near on the mountain. Yes. Exactly. Except in Morocco. Yes, I had a great time in Morocco and then came back and then made our way up to Barcelona and then met up with my cousin who was studying in the south of France and uh. and we snuck into her halls of residence for the for the night. Which was quite funny because they really did have like a matron who yeah. used to knock on the door, check, yeah, yeah. check that there were no boys, boys oh. in there. Oh. I mean, she was past 18, but for some reason. Do you know, I, <laughs> I had a, a, a girlfriend who lived in Paris and we met after we both left Paris, but her dormitory where she stayed, she was what, like in her 20s when the, and yeah, you weren't, you weren't allowed. You weren't allowed. Oh, no gosh, no. No poison. No, no. And that was in like 2000. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then and then um, we went across to, we used to kind of um, go on a sleeper train. Oh, nice. But it's funny, Alistair, because these seats, you'd say it's like your old kind of, well, new imagination Harry Potter train yeah, where Russian the Bluff. carriages yeah. and... Those upright seats used to fall down to one massive bed, yeah. and you'd be sharing with six of you in there, top and tailing. Oh. It is kind of weird, but we did it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'm not sure I would do that now. 
No. It's no. very bizarre. Sex people talking to me. <laughs> that is bizarre. Uh, wow. Yeah. It, it didn't always happen like that, but it did, you know, a couple of occasions. Um, and then we went across to Venice and had a lot of, you know, great time. And then went up to Budapest in 1988. Mm. So crossed the Iron Curtain. Yeah. And... Amazing. That was quite interesting. We turned up and it was freezing. Yeah. It was snow everywhere, ice everywhere. We trooped across. We had to go to a particular building, um, an accommodation agent. And we turned up. It was pitch black. And we turned up there. And luckily we had sort of like 20 minutes to spare. Otherwise we were going to shut shop. And I was oh, thinking, gosh, geez. where would we stay? And we got sent to um, a family in a huge high rise. Oh, goodness knows where at all. I think we took, must have taken a taxi or something. We were absolutely starving because no, when you're traveling on trains and you're going through one or two countries, in those days, you know, it wasn't so easy to just go and get cash out at banks. Yeah, yes, you, right. you took, you took traveler's checks. Yeah, oh, yeah. You had to go and see the manager who would yeah. check everything, <laughs> you know. So we'd left Italy, must have used all our lira, and then traveled through Austria to Hungary um, but we'd not had anything to eat from leaving Italy to, <laughs> to arriving hungry. We were starving. We got to Quite this literally. place. We arriving were arriving hungry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't really want to play that one. Sorry. Because I, I, I thought it was just a little bit too Our obvious. Are much high, more highbrow than that. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I apologize. <laughs> and we, we stayed the night in this, or we stayed a few nights in this place, in this mm, um, kind of high rise. Their guest room in old army camp beds. Wow! Um, and we thought we said to the the hosts, "Will there be anywhere that we could get something to eat?" And they said, "I'll oh, go down to the bar at the bottom of the high rise." So we went down there, and of course, they'd stopped serving, and they just had beer. So that's what we had that night: <laughs> beer. And we thought that wake up in the morning, we'll get rushed to the little shop and see what there was. And there really was. They everything was empty yeah. so it, it's a different world because as you know I went to Budapest this year and you know it couldn't be a different city yeah. amazing yeah so travelling straight away after school did you go on to do studies or anything like that oh I kind of dipped in and out I guess um, I, d- I think I probably did about three years four years of travel nice and then how um, did you support yourself through that I oh, just picked up temping jobs right you know, managed to, yeah, Burgess Hill, Brighton, Gatwick. Mm -hmm. You know, there was quite a lot of work around. So you could pick up jobs like that. And in those days, you know, it was very sought after if you could data input. (laughs) So with only a tiny little bit, it was the beginning of that kind of computerization of of businesses. So I've had jobs like that in the past. Yeah. So computer, but I, I tended, Nick did quite a bit of that and he used to get paid a fortune for doing things like that because he had a bit of computing background. Whereas I would do, there was a big company called Vandenberg's and they're part of Unilever and they had a big office not far from where I was brought up and they were constantly needing staff. So it was a good supplier. Anyway, one of my first jobs, uh, temping jobs, was in the postal department. 
Cool. So now, of course, that's completely obliterated because yeah, nobody has mail. mail. Yeah. But I used twice a day take a trolley and go around and deliver mail. That's great. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. You get to see loads of folk. Yeah. Good chat. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Knew everything that was going on. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> it was very good. Yeah. yeah, it was really, really good. Were there people kind of sending secret messages to each other through it? I wasn't aware of that particularly, <laughs> but it was it was quite a fun job, actually. But yeah, it's completely redundant now, that kind of work. Fair. But. You were the mail server. I was the mail server. And the next door were the kitchens. And the kitchens was where they were trialling out all their fats and spreads and all their Ooh. cooking stuff. And they would make up all these pastries and cakes and breads. Oh. And bring them through to the postal department. <laughs> so we did quite well out of that, really. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So there was lots of tempering work. So that basically, I didn't, we had no other commitments. And we were lucky enough that both our families were tolerant of us having adventures yeah and coming back and turning up and sticking around for a few months and then going off again but we tended you know on long trips we tended to pick up work away so when we went to new zealand and things we worked for six months fantastic and um to finance that what did you do what did you do in new in new zealand castrated corn Maze, can you imagine that? We got double pay because we were, we were prepared to work on Waitangi Day, which is their oh, national day, okay. and um, in February, and the job office the um, was had put an advert saying desperately need <laughs> maize castrators, <laughs> which basically is just pulling a central bit of the plant out. Oh, right, okay. So going through. Maize, things, just pulling this out. Cool. Yeah. Harvested garlic. Ooh, what was that like? Stinky. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hard work, but it was good. Apple. Yeah. Harvest and pruning. So a lot of farm work. Which is great, because it was a brilliant summer, and yeah. we were camping, and yeah. So where, where does the photography start? Actually, that started in New Zealand, really. We brought our first SLR camera, Olympus OM20, in Auckland. Wow. Yeah, first film camera. Did it feel like an investment? Yes. Yes, it probably was about £120 or something equivalent. So it was a bit of a... But our camera, our kind of point-and-shoot camera had given up the ghost by the time we got to New Zealand. It didn't really like Asia. (laughs) humidity levels and and heat and all sorts of things and there was a little minor explosion one time when we we had it go pop and again we bought it and spent quite a bit of money on it i thought at the time but um it didn't stand up to asia asia much but yeah so the photography started in new zealand with our first um, was there an eye to making a living from it then or was it just let's get the best quality memories we can yeah that you've hit the nail on the head really it was always very much to um visualize what we were experiencing no commercial head on at all um with it and in fact looking back at those early pictures i mean they were all print films so you'd never commercially be able to get rid of those anyway and we were learning and learning our way through it but I'm kind of like a bit impatient and I like to kind of, you know, skip the learning bit and just do it. <laughs> do it. Whereas Nick's quite methodical and he'll go through and work out and really understand what's going on. So, yeah. And, yeah, so we shared this camera. Oh, wow. 
how did you start to make a living from photography then? What what what, what was the opportunity? Oh, the one that went. You know, it? you know how that old saying of that you know being in the right place at the right time, and it yeah, really, yeah. it really, really was with us. So we'd not gone freelance completely, and we were doing lots of different jobs. We hadn't moved permanently up to Mull, but we were kind of going backwards and forwards between Mull and Sussex. And I had a job working for a friend, strawberry farm and recruitment company. <laughs> cool. In a wonderful, beautiful spot. Lovely old Elizabethan farmhouse and an office just to the side of it. And this is where we got to meet all our lovely, amazing South African and Romanian friends that we are still in touch with. That's great. So um, had really positive experiences working on these on this farm. And then um, one terrible summer where, you know, the strawberry crop, it was, it was the second largest strawberry supply for the country. One summer, it was just a dire summer and the strawberry crop just got obliterated. And he had, um, this is a farmer, had you know, 80 students who had their visa, working visa, agricultural working visa, for another sort of minimum two months, if not longer. And he thought, how am I going to? Because, you know, although the strawberry crop had been obliterated, there was new growth coming on and there was new fields, which would be coming on three weeks later. But how do you, But so he knew that he needed that workforce, but how was he going to retain them? How was he going to pay them? How was he going to pay them? How was he going to keep them? Because they are being paid and they're sending their money back home and all this kind of thing. So with a lot of thought, he came up with a plan to set up a recruitment company and approach various farms and small scale factories locally to the farm to... um, offload a lot of the employment uh, uh, the the students there and it worked anyway it grew from that and um i went and worked there and then but prior to doing that we'd had a chance to go to italy nick and i went off to italy and we photographed in venice and florence a magazine had asked us if we could get some photos of Florence, and we were using a Pentax 645 at the time, so beautiful, lovely, big slide. Mm. And from Italy, we mailed them back to London and paid a fortune to make sure they were secure. But they never turned up. Oh, no. And by the time we got back, that magazine had folded, so we'd lost these pictures. And I was sitting at the desk of... um, this recruitment company in the strawberry farm. And I'm supposed to be doing other things, but of course I've got this jotter and I'm thinking, who should I contact to try and find out what's happened with these pictures? Week later, I've got a series of names down on this jotter and I look at them with fresh eyes because I'm not going anywhere. Everywhere is leading to a brick wall. There's nobody answering the phone or this person's moved on, or whatever. And there is this name, Hilary Jenin, Insight Guides, and a telephone number. And I'm thinking, hold on, that's a picture editor of one of the biggest travel publishers who we've been trying to (laughs) get into. I should just give her a call. And so I did. And she said, I'm busy at the moment, but call me in two weeks and come up and see me. So I did. 
and went and had a meeting with her on Barra High Street in London. And she saw, looked at the portfolio. Remember, there was nobody in the office, just her and me and this um, light box and portfolio. And she'd seen we'd been to Russia and all this kind of thing. And there and then she said, I'd like to give you a commission, like you to go to St. Petersburg. The budget would be this, I think four and a half thousand pounds. Oh my goodness. Um, and I had to kind of look at her and say, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. I'll have to talk to Nick about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, she said, yeah, do that and get back to me. Um, and so I then kept my <laughs> calm <laughs> and went downstairs, uh, left the building and called Nick, who was doing some plastering work. And said, how would you like to go to St. Petersburg? So that's what we did. Fantastic. So that was how it happened. But it was all this kind of out of losing something, yeah. you found we found something. And the door opened for us with that and it led on to other things. So that was the big moment. And that a year after that, so after doing the St. Petersburg job, I went and did a New York job. And that was a year after 9-11. Oh, so gosh. that was quite a significant trip. And then it led on from there, really, and got other work through other companies and then moved up to Mull. So when was the first time you came to Mull and what did you think? I came to Mull in 1990. Three, I think it was around that time, and I stayed at Tororan. Really? Yeah, at the Steadings in Tororan. Okay. Because the Steadings at Tororan at that time, there was quite a little group of artists and mm. like-minded people that lived there. Any of them still here? Yeah, Douglas Canning is still here. Ah, uh, Douglas Canning. So, and there was lovely Douglas Brown, who sadly passed away a few years ago now. It was a good experience. It was really good. Um, I did some winkle picking because I needed to pay for my coach ticket arm. <laughs> so I picked some winkles. Right. Gosh. And it was the two of you together as well? Yeah, I don't know whether Nick had... Yeah, he must have come up with me because we did the over... we used to do the overnight coach from Victoria up to Glasgow. Yeah. Which is like a killer. Aye, so and I'm people not... used to smoke on the coach as well. Oh, oh it was awful. I hated it. But it got us up here, so... And how long were you here for? Was it Probably like... about a week that time. Okay. And I remember it being May, I think it was. I think it was May. And you had to go. You had to work to pay for your... <laughs> within a week, that's amazing. <laughs> well, it was just, you know... Yeah, I just had to get some money together. And what did you... So it was all right. What did you make of them all? Well, it seemed... Like, a bit otherworldly to me. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. It's different again. That's, yeah. That's just like a pocket there, there. Yeah. Yeah, really different. I was kind of quite daunted by it because it's scale. Yeah. And it's... And I still find it... I mean, I've grown accustomed to it, obviously, living here for the length of time I have now. But still find it artistically quite daunting. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well... I always doubt that I could actually really encapsulate the beauty of it. I think that's probably what it is. And yeah. so... The scale of it is... The sucks. scale is huge. And 
it is so stunning and I feel like I'm not really worthy of yeah yeah you know harnessing that in, through photography I know some people find it really easy to do that but I yeah. I like to look with my eyes and then through a camera lens I really love doing having a real fixed yeah. aperture on things yeah. which I think is really hard to capture the landscape in that and some people yeah it's not just the question of framing it it's the question of how you frame it how you yeah it. completely so I tend to leave Nick to do the landscape photography because I kind of feel that yeah it, I find it yeah quite a challenge to do it actually so um so mull for a week then what what was the drawback why around that kind of time i guess i did i had done my uh, i had done my foundation course art foundation course and then applied for you know a ridiculous course which i really wasn't interested in at all and consequently didn't get onto the course <laughs> Because Fair I'd said something like, I don't want to be just a potter, which is like such a naff thing to say. <laughs> you know, I and I know what it was. I just actually had no clue what I wanted to do. Yeah. And the timing wasn't right to go on to a degree course. And just as well, because it would... Who would that have been? Exeter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that was my first choice. Why Exeter? I've got no idea. No idea why Exeter. So, but... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Strange. Anyway, came up here in 95, the winter of 95, and um, Nick's mum, Fran, had gone to Australia to see family mm. for three months. And she left us her house, her car, her job, <laughs> oh, wow. and the dog. And um, so Nick was the Prue woman <laughs> on Mull for three months. And um, I got a portfolio together because at that point then I felt I was really ready to, I really wanted to do, uh, to go back and do an arts degree. And um, I was much more focused on doing printmaking. So that's what I applied for. And I applied for, and this is, you know, I applied for Norwich School of Art Design and got on to their course. So And was that three years? Three year, yeah. Wow. Three year course. And that was 19... 95 to 98 so it was off the back of the whole kind of goldsmiths you know mm. damien hurst mm. tracy Emin, sarah lucas lot and we were very fortunate as a fine art department to have a tutor there that was also a prodigy from that mm. time who kept in touch with all these artists and would have them come up to Norwich. Oh, that must have been very inspiring. Every week. So there was Grayson Perry. Oh, wow. I mean, they would come and they would spend a day, they would give a tutorial. like a, a Not just a potter. Not <laughs> just a potter, I know. <laughs> so cringe-making, isn't it? Commentary no. on that. Yeah, so we had these brilliant, you know, awesome... Inspirational figures. Inspirational figures come up. Mm. They weren't all brilliant. No. Artist doesn't have to be brilliant at speaking an artist as an artist doing their thing very often. So. It was still quite it was still good to have that connection with what was actually happening, you know, in the real world. So yeah. because of course being at college you're cocooned. Yeah. I think it's a, the three years of utter luxury yes. being at art school. Yeah. Student loans came in on the second my second year, but I still qualified for a grant. So 
I was fortunate because I don't know how people manage south of the border now to do an arts degree. You need to have financial backing. Completely. But it was an absolute, the luxury, three-year luxury of doing exactly what you wanted to do. And yeah. That's magic. Yeah, it's magic. It's, it is good. So I'm pleased I did that. But came away from that broke and Nick said, come, of course. come to Mull. <laughs> Let's go to Mull. And I, yeah. That's so. so what did you do for, for work when you first came to Mull? Um, I worked at Class 37 at the time. Round at Tororan. Oh, right. Mm. What, was, what was the class 37 operation? Well, it was produce publications of calendars and gift cards. So it was packing and packing to orders and that kind of thing, really. And what was your first big photography contract when you came to live in Mull? Ironically, most of our work was away. <laughs> <laughs> at the time, and it's, you know, still mostly the case... Business, photography business is still very centred around major cities. Yes, yeah. So um, that's where the designers are, that's where the art departments are. So we'd always have to go down, usually had to go down to London to meet people and sell our wares and things like that. Yeah. So going coming back home to Mull was like holiday because we had editing to do. Yeah. But then all 90% of the work had been done away from home, coming backwards. At that point, were you living in Fran's house as well? Or you... Yes, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. That's yeah. such a fantastic so We were like location. cuckoos in the nest yeah. because she'd, she she was doing other stuff and away um, from Mull. Yeah. And we were the cuckoos in the nest there, keeping it ticking over. Mm. With a boat yeah. on the shore and, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's good. So you had the experience of, of um, not having a, uh, a, a home as well for a while. Like we did, we moved around a lot as well. Yeah. What was what was the experience like of finally getting your own place? Because you've got this wonderful, wonderful home now. What yeah. Was the of, of... It was really great because um, much like yourselves, when you don't have your own place, you don't know, you've got this kind of, what should we do with ourselves? <laughs> yeah. Are you ask that questions? Should we stay on Mull, or should yeah. we be should we be looking somewhere else, or are there opportunities elsewhere? But it was wonderful because Elvin, who sold us her house, was really keen that we bought it from her, and she kind of made it happen in a way, which was great. And she, you know, she was so determined that we were going to move into it. That's wonderful. And so she, you know, she was great like that. It felt really good. I think. Do you know who I think actually felt it more with the children? Yes. Because Nick and I lived quite a transient life for quite a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think the kids really, really appreciate having their feet in one place. Whereas Nick and I kind of, well, okay, I guess we should do it. (laughs) (laughs) Get a house. (laughs) Um, But I, I think the children, they really, really love the fact that this is their home. And that's that's important, I mean. And how is it having the experience of having children in the Ross Mall? Uh, your son is at school in primary school here, but mm-hmm. your daughter is off at, uh, at Oban. Yeah. What's that experience like, having had her in school here as well? It's very interesting. What's that experience like? Because I've talked time and time again to people who are who have been through it as students, who come in um, as students, but I've not really talked to the parents of someone who's... Mm. Well... You know, it's been an adjustment for all of us. I can't say that really, really love it. For Eva, but 
you know, quite considerably for mm-hmm. Nick and I. Yeah. Our daughter's great fun and energy and a real kind of um, great positive child to have around. You know, it's yeah, just lovely. Yeah. And we all miss her. Yeah. Oscar as well in his own in, in his own way. I mean, he misses her. But at the same time, it's kind of like, well, being a second child, he's also now got us to himself. Yeah. Monday yeah. to Friday, which yes. I think he loves it because he's got this voice and he kind of will not stop talking. <laughs> That's brilliant. You've got this eight-year-old chatter going on the whole time. I don't know what that's like at all. (laughs) And then, of course, we have Eva coming back on a Friday. Zombie child. Yeah. Um, Exhausted after everything. Exhausted. Saturday, sleeping in till 12, 1 o'clock. And then Sunday, finally get her back. And she's away Monday morning. She's away Monday morning. So that's quite hard, all that business. And it's as much kind of letting go. Because, of course, it's what we all end up doing. Um, But but it's kind of advanced a lot more um, with sending them off to high school. That whole process is brought forward, you know, quite a number of years ahead of most people's. So when you're travelling with your photography work, how does it feel having the kids with you now? It was always the case. We were always going to do it with the children. And, um, you know, people love to say, oh, you won't be able to do it with children. But, of course, that's like red rag to a bull with us. And it's like, well, we're not going to be told by anybody whether we can (laughs) do this or not. And I'm not saying that it's easy. It's not. But actually, the children are brilliant. You know, we have to allow extra time Yes. So we always, so if a job is going to be two weeks, we allow three weeks just so that we have those breaks and that it's not all slog. And, you know, when the children were smaller, perhaps Nick would be up and out first and then I would join in later on in the day with the children. And then I would have appointments for interiors that I had to do. And I would go off and do that while he had the children. So it worked out really well. We just had to allow for that um, extra time. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still. No worries. Yeah, the people people that we worked for um, had no idea that we had children. <laughs> it was on a need to know basis, yeah. and we felt they didn't need to know. And I remember going for interviews, and I was three months pregnant, four months pregnant, and I was wearing a baggy top. I was lucky in the sense that I didn't show until last minute that I was quite pregnant, but. And in one of the shoots in China, we I was well, 28 weeks when we left China. But Nick was taking, he, sometimes when he needed, when we needed a figure, just a blurry figure or something in a picture, it would be me. And then it would be kind of like, yeah, but you can't go sideways because <laughs> oh. you can see the shape. Oh. And it might show that it's you. Mm-hmm. But we did try to also, we, our aim also is to get the kids in a book, <laughs> each book that we do. There's at least one picture of them in there. That's fantastic. So they are recorded in, that in print. fantastic. Yeah, so we do try to do that. But it's great. I mean, you know, both children, three weeks old, got their passports, and we were off. And both with both children, we did, on, you know, there's four years apart from them. Yeah. And the same, we got asked to do the same shoot 
twice, two different companies. So with Eva, when she was three or four weeks old, we got sent to do the Italian Lakes for a company. And wow. then four years later, we get sent to do the Italian Lakes with Oscar. Lovely. So, you know, they, they've always been, yeah, they've always been kind of used to being yeah. <laughs> transported around. But good, they, they, they enjoy it. They like it. Most citizens of the world. Hopefully. They love it. And the thing is, is that they, and I look at even now, and even now when I ask, when we ask her, oh, can you just stand in for a photo for us and that kind of thing, she knows exactly what to do. Yeah, she does that kind of, yeah, she does a kind of natural, she has a natural way with her. (laughs) Oscar at eight, less so. (laughs) But he did have a role the other week in a picture, which we needed a child dribbling a ball against this lovely wall. And it was perfect because he managed to show off his skills. Yeah, and in terms of uh, your practice, you mentioned shooting with slide cameras and things like that, slide slide photography way back. How has the world of photography changed in that time since you've been... Oh, gosh, hugely. Is it better? Is it worse? Is it same? Is it just different? It is so different. It's just different. I think what it is, though, is that when we worked and when you learn the process of photography through an SLR, you're learning, you know, the science behind it. Yes. The reason why something happens and something doesn't happen <laughs> and what works, what doesn't work and the importance of light, times of day, everything. And so given when you're working with a slide or film, print, you know, as in black and white, mm-hmm. colour or slide, um, films, you don't have the luxury of knowing what you're taking until after the event. <laughs> you, in a way, you're on a bit of a wing of a prayer, even though after all the years that we did it, I mean, we would go on shoots and we'd have 40 rolls of film and they would, from, you know, we have to produce something like 800 images from that 40 rolls of film. Images that would be print, ready Still, to go, yeah. that were handed over. So they all had to be good. You had to use at least three pictures to get the exposure right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Completely. So, so you just had to be much more cautious about and yeah. careful and planned. But at the same time, that teaches you so much about That's photography. That's a discipline in itself. Yeah, yeah, completely. We sort of transferred to digital with that whole mindset. Yeah. And so quite a lot of the time we find that we try to limit what we do on a computer after the photography because... All those decisions have been made at point of pressing the shutter, the exposure decisions and things like that. So you're not having to then go, oh gosh, the light looks really rubbish here. We'll have to enhance it somehow and all this kind of thing. Yeah, so you just, as you say, it's a discipline and you keep that keep that with it, really. But I never, i tell you a funny story though. We were doing a shoot in Venice and we're on, I'm on a pontoon taking picture across the Grand Canal, and I'm going to change film. And I've got <laughs> the back of the camera open. In taking the old film out, which is all wound back, I'm putting the new film in. And in fumbling, I drop that film, and it rolls along the pontoon through the gap into the canal. <laughs> so that was a day's 
half days worth of photography. Luckily, it wasn't all kind interiors. of like interiors, mm. which I'd spent hours on telephones trying to get and fax, sending faxes, trying to get permissions for. Luckily, it was all kind of, I knew where the pictures were taken and what it, what it represented. Yeah. Just went back and did again. But it just goes to show how precarious yeah. that whole nature of working with this spool of film was. <laughs> In one of the companies we worked for, they used to have a whole floor which was dedicated to the art department. So that's picture editors, researchers, designers, and it's a large publisher. Everything was in-house. And it must have been, that department would have employed easily 100 people. Cartographers, mm. you know, the whole shebang, all in-house. They've gone down to one person. So they've they've just got somebody running their library. That's horrendous. Yeah. And that probably happened about eight years ago or nine years ago. God. It's quite depressing, isn't it? <laughs> but but someone's picked up that work somewhere, yeah, but yeah. it's just where Don't they picked worry, up the work. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. That's you captured on uh, chips. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alistair. Thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic. No, it's been great. Um, thank you. I've been prattling on like anything. Oh, no, gosh. It's been wonderful. I hope, it, I hope it's um, worthy of a podcast. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> Do you think? <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to chat, Anna. It's always a pleasure to catch up. And thank you to to Nick, who makes a couple of appearances in the distance throughout the course of this episode. It's another cracking day here in the north of Mull. I'm just loving the light at the moment. I'll put up a wee video of the sunset from the other night online for you to have a look at if you want to see it. Where we are looks out over to the Uists on a clear day. So when the sun sets, they raise out of the horizon in silhouette. It's really special to get to see it when we do. I'll be out and about in Mull and Iona over the coming next six or seven weeks with a film education project for schools, so I should have a chance to talk to more people in other parts of the island soon, which I'm really looking forward to. I've got three more episodes that I've recorded but not edited yet, so they'll be part of the forthcoming schedule too. In one episode, we hear about the cleverest dog that ever lived and its ability to sort laundry. In another episode, we hear about the true resting place of the Holy Grail. Only the penitent, only the penitent, only the penitent may pass. And... In another episode, I speak with two gentlemen who've both featured in the podcast in previous episodes, but we get a chance to get deeper into some of the topics they both touched on. I'm really looking forward to sharing that one with you. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm looking to fundraise through donations. So, if you feel like it, and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee, or even the price of a small Bentley Continental, through the website. You'll see a Donate tab there, where you can donate if you so wished. I've also got a Patreon page for donations, which you can find under my name, Alistair Satchel. If you want to contribute to that, you're very welcome. But don't worry if you can't donate or you don't want to. I'd much rather that you listen than not. And if you want to sponsor any episodes at all as a business, please feel free to drop me a line. Also, to help me grow the podcast, if you want to leave a rating or a review on whichever platform you use to listen, I'd be most grateful. Thank you to those of you that have. I really, really appreciate it. And on that note, thank you to Rhoda for your support on social media. That's very kind of you indeed. And thank you also to those of you who reached out to say hello. It's always wonderful to hear from you. Thank you. As ever, the webpage, whatwedointhewinter.com, has all the links and info you'll need from this episode. And we can be found on Twitter, 
Facebook and Instagram. Caillou, thank you for listening. Wherever you may be, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Morning, thank you.